I really needed this episode this week. Let me put a timestamp on this. It's the first day of December, about a week after our live event that we had up here in Noosa. And I recorded this conversation with Dr. Michael Archinal about a month ago, maybe even a bit longer. And I've kind of forgotten what we talked about. So here's why I needed to hear it again. I've been feeling a bit flat this week. Last week's conference was such a high, and the lead up to it, plus the week itself, was so far out of my comfort zone that I'm experiencing that inevitable cortisone withdrawal syndrome with an accompanying cocktail of emotions, including elation, overanalysis, moments of self-congratulation punctuated by bouts of excessive self-criticism, and all of this infused with a solid dose of good old exhaustion. If you think about that feeling you had after big exams at vet school, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. All of that preparation and anticipation, and then once the pressure's off, your body just goes, okay, stuff you, buddy. I'm taking a break, whether you like it or not. So I didn't really feel like editing or releasing anything this week. But man, am I glad I did it. Listening to Michael talk about his incredible choose-your-own-adventure kind of career that goes from lying curled up on the floor with just four sausages in the freezer to being in a place where he can have an impact on some really big-picture problems. Learning how he makes decisions, how he deals with bad decisions, uses gratitude as a shield, and really seems to be having a lot of fun along the way has totally lifted me out of my funk. And I think it will inspire you too. It also reminded me, yet again, and you'd think I wouldn't need any reminding after 81 podcast episodes, but it reminded me of the incredible community of people that we find ourselves in in this profession. I had the same thoughts last week at our conference. I was sitting in a room with 35 of you after a spectacular lunch, looking at everyone around me, and I actually felt quite emotional. Now, I'll confess that the wine menu was really good, so I may have been a tad more emotional than normal, but I was watching Professor David Church and Prof. Jill Madison, These two really smart and accomplished, but really modest and kind people share their life's accumulated learning with so much passion and care to an audience of people who have sacrificed 20 hours of their very precious time to learn about the intricacies of a handful of unique diseases just so that they can take better care of the 10 or maybe 20 patients that they'll probably see per year with those conditions. I also heard conversations about work and kids and money and hopes and dreams, plans, struggles and some darkness. And I realized that at the heart of it, maybe we weren't getting together just to learn how to manage diabetes better or what to do with jaundiced cats. We were connecting. We were sharing our light to help chase away some of that darkness and to make things better for our patients, for ourselves, and for our community. So thank you for being part of this community. Okay, enough of my musings. Dr. Michael Archinal. Who is Dr. Michael Archinal? Michael's been a vet for over 35 years and is currently the senior director of nine veterinary hospitals. He has postgraduate training in animal behavior, acupuncture, dermatology, and pharmacology. Michael also has an illustrious media career that includes 13 years as a weekly guest presenter on Channel 9's Mornings with Kerry Ann and Sonia Kruger and 21 years as an ABC radio talkback host as well as being a regular contributor on the national ABC radio afternoons. When he's not talking, he's writing, from a regular column in Dog's Life magazine to, more recently, his own book, Animal Wisdom, which has sold over 10,000 copies. But because Michael doesn't like being lazy, he also helped establish a remote indigenous dog health program in Utopia in the Northern Territory, where he still volunteers, 
and which saw him nominated as an Australian of the Year finalist for the ACT in 2016. And there's more, but I've talked enough, so I will let him tell you more about it. Please enjoy Dr. Michael Archinal. Thank you for joining us on The Vet Good morning, Hugh. Where are we going to start? So many wide things to talk about, Michael. You do so much. Should we start, though, with a question about bad decisions lead to good stories and whether you agree with that statement? And if so, have you got any examples for us? Mm, um, and I'm a uh, big fan of listening to the podcast. You guys do a great job and contribute beautifully to the profession. But look, I don't think there's such a thing as a bad decision, right? So I don't agree with that statement at all. And I think it's a really important thing because I see both clinically and also in business that people get really paralysed by decision-making processes. And if they think that there's going to be short-term bad outcomes, it really hampers their ability to move forward. I'd rather make, you know, 10 decisions and get nine of them right and one of them wrong and just keep moving forward. So I think there's not bad decisions. I think there's only bad outcomes. You make the decision at the time with the relevant information you've got in the situation that you're in, and, and that's totally appropriate, and you just have to learn to respect, you know, you in the moment. I'd like that, but then how do you mentally and emotionally deal with those bad outcomes? Have you ever struggled with then looking back at, an, at a bad outcome and going, oh, I was such an idiot, I made the wrong decision. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I could have, if I didn't, I would have, this could have happened. Oh, look, if maybe, but we'd all be millionaires and, you know, everything would be perfect, <laughs> wouldn't it? You know, as I said, just got to learn from your mistakes and you've got to be grown up enough to realise that we're just not perfect. And we're going to make mistakes all the time. But as long as you make two good decisions for one bad, at least you're moving forward, right? But really, this analysis of people not making a decision because they're just paralysed too, I think really stops people moving forward in their professional career. Yeah, I can probably attest to that personally, is overthinking stuff and then not doing anything. It still happens to this day, really. You think too much about things and you don't act. Yeah, and that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, yeah. So I'd love to find out about your story, Michael. You do so much and I even Googling you, it's a little bit of story there and a little bit of that there. How does one become the director of nine clinics? Is that correct? Yeah, that's Am I understanding right. yep. that correctly. Does director mean owner or like can you own all of them or part own some of them or manage or, or what what does it actually look like? Yeah, so we've got nine hospitals and I've got sensational business partners in these hospitals as well. So it's together I own a joint ownership across these nine. So how does that happen? How do you go from vet student to owner of nine hospitals or co-owner? Yeah, you find yourself here, actually, as it turns out. And we're just talking about decision-making processes. Things and opportunities arise at certain times that you make decisions there to, to, and you end up in certain positions. But how did I get to nine? Well, we started off, I had a very big hospital. I was headhunted up to uh, Canberra to work in a, a large vet hospital as a succession planning partner. I'd set up my own practice from scratch. I'd only been out two or three years, I think, um, down the south coast of New South Wales. And um, I was a student at this hospital. So that's a good little tip for any you know, students listening to this is if you want to work in a place, go and do your placement there. I ended up being headhunted up there. And then we saw the rise of the corporates coming. And we thought, gee whiz, we need to be a bit of a critical mass to be able to offer some sort of alternative because I had the opportunity as well to go to the US and meet with the CEO and COO of Banfield and 
UK with Goddard's and really got onto the inside of these guys. And I didn't really want, personally, didn't want to head down that path. And I wanted to give the opportunity to other veterinarians that I've had as well. So a few opportunities came up and um, there were some older gentlemen selling practices who also wanted to sell within the profession. And so very quickly, we had a few hospitals on board. And I've got to say, there's a huge difference between owning one hospital or two hospitals to then leveraging yourself across nine. Right. So the information and the skills you've got when you've got one or two absolutely won't serve you once you want to go past that, once you're leveraged really heavily. So then when we also had um, people approach us that wanted to go into business and we'd, we'd kind of pulled up stops at about five hospitals. We said, look, that's enough. And, but then people said, I want to go into the industry. I don't know how. I don't have the IP. Can we do a, a joint venture with you and, and get on board? And so that's how we found ourselves at nine. And I don't regret any of it. You know, we've got a great team, great partners, lovely people. We're all got the same philosophy. So just to recap, so you started your own business a couple of years out of uni. You started, bought a practice or started from scratch? No, I started from scratch. <laughs> Naivety is great, isn't it? We, uh, I, I left uni in 87 and then worked for uh, a fellow for a little while down in the Southern Highlands and then went up to the country of northern New South Wales, large animal practice. And then about three years out, opened my own from scratch. I had an $8,000 overdraft and at one stage I had spent $7,960 and I had four sausages in the fridge and a six-month-old baby. <laughs> <laughs> I remember lying on the ground going, oh, no, maybe my boss will take me back, you know. But it was one of those Cortez moments, you know. You burn the ships and you go, all right, away we go. And, and I think that served me really well, you know, just that real sliding doors moment where I said, well, no, nah, we're going to give this a red-hot go red hot crank so the four sausage stage that was while you were owning was it shortly after starting the practice and it hadn't picked up yet was that the, the motivator to work harder or um well you know work harder work smarter i'm a big student my mum was uh, worked in a library and i'm a big reader and so i thought gee whiz i don't have the skills here and this is maybe why this practice isn't doing what it's meant to do so i um read 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 and, you know, it seemed to stick in accord with the community and the way it went. Standout books that you read at that? We'll get to books later, but I have to ask here, if you said you read, 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 was there, was there a, one or two books that made a massive difference to how you ran things or how you thought about things? Yeah, 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 sure. And and we might get onto this a bit later too, but I had the, I've had the privilege of having a media career for quite some time and I've met all these amazing people. And there's a guy called Robert Kiyosaki who produces the book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Well, I got to have coffee with Robert and his wife for two hours in the green room, just personally, wow. you know? Wow. Just amazing, right? Well, that book, it just shows you that, well, to me, I grew up in a, a bit of a poor family. My dad died the day after I was born. There was five kids under five. And so we were almost put in foster homes. And so I realised from an early age, I always worked for, since I was very, very young, and I realised from an early age that if it was going to be, it's up to me. You know, nobody owes me anything, right? And so when I read Robert Kiyosaki's book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, it, it really struck an accord with me and I thought, wow, we, you know, I really need to start to think about the bigger phases of business now that I actually have this mm-hmm. practice that I'm trying to get off the ground. Uh, and that really struck an accord, that's, that's for sure. The E-Myth by Michael Gerber, these are all older books and I think books find you at a certain time you're at in your business life and help you at different stages. So you had the practice. It obviously started working. You made some changes that turned it into a 
more successful business. And then you said you were headhunted to go and manage another hospital. Was this while owning this business or did you sell that and then move along? Uh, look, I had to sell it because, you know, there were, you know, finances were always a problem. So sold the business mm-hmm. and um, moved up to Canberra as a succession planning partner. So joined the practice straight away. It was six vets at the time. And by the time I left it 15 years later, it was 13 vets. Went fantastic. Just, you know, this is the greatest profession there is, the vet- veterinary science, right? I can tell you the reason why I know that is if you go to a dinner party, unless there's an astronaut who's actually landed on the moon, you're the most interesting person <laughs> at the dinner party, right? <laughs> Everybody wants to be a vet and we know it's hard, you know. It's really hard but nothing comes easy and if you really commit yourself to it, it it's really is the greatest profession. So I'm lucky. I'm, I've got the luxury of having these opinions, right, because I got into the vet game when it was a different beast than it is now and the pressures that put on us as individuals are way, way different. You know, the phrase would often be uttered back early on, oh, well, at least you had a go or you did your best or, you know, it's not the, that's not what happens now. The expectations of clients are very, very different. So I joined in Canberra and on that and then very fortunately got surrounded by some, I'm not very smart, right, in a clinical setting, and surrounded myself with very smart clinicians and boy, oh boy, they were just brilliant, all with their memberships and UK diplomas and, you know, it, it was a fantastic heap of fun, good ride. And then we noticed the corporate's coming, so I, I had to change my tack a little bit and stop being so clinically focused and get a bit more business focused. Yeah, I want to ask you about that because you, I don't know what the timing of it is, but you've done a lot of clinical extra stuff as well. So the normal trajectory that I tend to see in people is, is the clinical years where you upskill and work on your clinical skills and then very often that leads towards some sort of ownership or leadership role or something like that. And then that takes up more and more time and it becomes more interesting to learn about people and management and finances. So that becomes the next stage and often the clinical stuff then becomes secondary or if not completely left behind. It seems to be the almost natural evolution. Whereas with you, there's the it's a lot of extra study. You've got the acupuncture, you've got the dermatology, right? Yeah, yeah. Is it yeah. pharmacology as well? It's a, it's a wide range of interesting things that I'd love to double click on at some point. Are those ongoing, those clinical interests, or are those in the past? No, 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 ongoing. Um, you have to have relevance as a practice owner and you, you have to know what's going on because to make an appropriate decision, you really have to understand the systems and processes at work. And if you're not keeping up with what's going on medically and the trends within the clinical scenarios of practice, you're making bad decisions. Specifically those sort of things, though, that the dermo I did because, as I said, I was surrounded by really smart people and everyone hated skin, right? And so um, I thought, well, why don't I do this? And, you know, at least I can contribute somewhere. And like anything, the more you know, the more you enjoy it. And I just love doing dermo now. Acupuncture I did because I was a skeptic. There was a, a vet in Canberra who was an acupuncturist and she'd left to go to Victoria and she, we would refer cases to her and she would get a lot of our back cases better. And so I was the biggest sceptic of all. So I went along and did my Chinese medicine degree. Animal behaviour, as I said, I've had a, a big media career and 70% of the stuff you get asked has got to do with behaviour. So I thought I should know something about that <laughs> rather than just give an uneducated opinion. So that, that's where it led me down that path as well. It's interesting you say if you don't stay up to date clinically, you make bad decisions. Do you mean bad clinical decisions or bad business decisions? No, bad business decisions. 
as I said, I've always got, I don't work much clinically now and I've got, once again, always surround myself with very smart veterinarians. So I've always got someone I can fall back on. But it's business decisions, not knowing where the trends are, not knowing what the latest, you know, what's out there. That's where you make your bad decisions. I find that fascinating. That's that's very true, isn't it? If you say trends, do you mean trends, what, what are clients wanting or? Yeah, what clients want. You know, what veterinarians want, um, what pieces of equipment that really will make a difference. They're not just a toy. They'll actually make a difference to the quality of the pets that are in your care. Uh, Conditions of your employees that I work with. You know, what's out there in the industry? What are the expectations of staff? You really need still to be on the ground. And I think that's part of a problem where, and, and a mistake that's made when you get bigger practice groups is that a lot of people step back or they're, not got an intimate knowledge of the veterinary industry. And this is back to your question about bad decisions. This is where bad outcomes are made. Decisions are made and then the outcomes aren't as good as they could have been. So how much clinical work are you doing, Michael? Um, only a morning a week. Do you spread yourself between the different businesses or how do you how do you devote enough attention to them all? No, what we do is part of the, the ethos of our group is that we really want the more locally owned, locally run have their own individual personality and so I will fill in if needed if there's a problem at other practices on short notice but predominantly I manage one or two practices and that's where I put focus most of my time. You still enjoy the clinical stuff? Yeah love it absolutely love it. I've got you know as you go on in your professional career you get the ability to realize when something's not right and recognize it really early on and also you know what you don't know and because you've got that luxury you can say to the client I don't know or we're going to refer this and clinical work becomes a lot more fun that way you're not expected to know every answer every time yeah true isn't it it's, it's almost like your expectations of yourself are, are lower just in a weird way you don't feel you don't feel like it's a personal failure if you don't know you just go yeah I just don't know and I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that yeah that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah that's right there's no ego anymore ego's long since left the building <laughs> I, I like what you said michael about i hate to derm everybody hates to derm so i i did that i often think that about it as a strategy even in terms of adding value as an employee to yourself to your own pocket is to look at the gaps in the business where you work in and say well what does everybody hate doing and let me get really good at it because it's it's often we hate it because we're not good at it and as soon as you become the master of that thing and you the person that people then say hey can you help me with this case that it sort of gives you the confidence and you feel better about it and then suddenly you're actually a more valuable employee as well we could probably negotiate your, your salary better if you say yeah well i turned hundred thousand a year in derm pay me more <laughs> yeah absolutely you got a special skill you no question but it also translates to the business side as well i hated numbers and accountants and balance sheets and p&ls and then I suddenly went, it's the same, exactly the same philosophy. I suddenly went, well, that's a bit ridiculous. So then I went away and really learnt a lot about it. And now, you know, I love it because I know a bit about it, you know, and I get to talk about it for some reason. You know the Tom Waits song, Big in Japan? You ever heard that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I lecture in Japan all the time. I've been there heaps and, you know, three big all country visits and do webinars for them. And so for some reason I resonate in Japan, but it's all about the business side. It's all about the numbers. And um, I really, really enjoy that, you know, spreadsheets and hot sheets and KPIs and sounds very boring, but 
Exactly. I'm listening to you going like that. Blah, blah. For some reason. <laughs> Those things, it's not even that I hate it. I get it like an anxiety. As soon as I sit down with a spreadsheet or something, I just start getting a, was like a panic attack. <laughs> Maybe I should take your strategy and, and learn about it. Why, why Japan? How did Japan happen? Is it two vets or, or to any businesses? So, sorry, just, just before we leave that, the reason I really got involved with this was I thought if we're going to run a lot of practices, I've got the, the responsibility for 146 employees now. And I've got the responsibility to look after them and their families. So, you know, I can't just be stupid about this. So how did Japan happen? I, I got the opportunity to be part of the launch of a heartworm product throughout Japan and got over there. And it's all about respect in Japan. They're just such beautiful people. So I learned some of the language. I spent a while learning some Japanese and also a lot about the Japanese culture. And so I got over there and... They were blown away that anyone would be think so, think enough of their country to have learned some of the language for this, and so they really took me to heart. And from the back of that, then a practice management group picked me up over there, and then from that, other groups picked me up. And you know, when you speak to six hundred vets in one room, as I did in Osaka, there's always people there who, you know, know people and think, oh, this guy'd be good. You know, so I was flavour of the month there for a little while. That was good fun. <laughs> There's a country that I know nothing about the vet profession. Is it a oh, a very so big profession? Is it a, is it a- so like I can talk about that for hours? But a couple of really really interesting things that struck me was they don't actually have any specialist qualifications. So if you want to be, you can go off and do them, right? But to be called a specialist in Japan, you just need to be recognised by your peers that you're good at that. Right. So if you want to spend, there was one guy who was a dermatologist, right? So he had just done lots and lots of study and he was known as the dermatologist. And because they are really seriously all about respect, that guy was a really good dermatologist, even though he hadn't done his American boards, right? Um, the other thing that really struck me was space is an issue, right? Of course. So these practices were tiny, but the vast majority of them had not only a CT, but also an MRI. Because about 60 to 70% of dogs are under five kilo and they're all fracturing their radiuses and ulnas and getting non unions and they all had heart disease. So these MRIs and CTs were running all day long. And these guys were phenomenal surgeons and just so highly qualified. It was really, real eye opener as to how it was, it was practiced over there. So, what can we learn from them? Did you learn stuff from Japan that you brought home to your businesses? Yeah, of course. You come back very, very different. What I really liked was the fact that I realised that you don't have to practice veterinary science the way you think it's practised. There are lots of other alternatives out there. So you don't have to be practices that just work, you know, all day Sundays or open till 10 o'clock at night. You can choose your own path. There's lots of room in the marketplace for this. There's lots of, lots of work out there. You just got to choose how you want to do the work. It doesn't have to be cookie cutter. So is that an, a more of an approach there, that it's more niche or people do practice in, in, in different ways and different practices? Or, uh, they've still got a – you mean in Japan? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's still very, very – you know, the society, they're beautiful people. They work really, really hard, really hard, which, you know, that's just – it's not the Australian – well, you know, we work really, really hard here too, but Australian culture is very different. It wouldn't translate. Tell me about the media career. How – was that – because of VET or was it a media career before VET? No, no, it was because of it. That was really good fun. And I think, I suppose, 
I've been a vet 35 years. Not many people have a great longevity in their career, but I think I've been able to reinvent myself a lot of times. So I get very passionate about things and get bored as well. So there was a show on telly called Animal Hospital and they were looking for a new presenter and we had a, I mentioned to you, I had a really big practice at the time. So they came down, they used to come down to sit in the waiting room and film for the day and then they wanted a new presenter and so they got five people they liked on camera to do screen tests and I got the job and lo and behold uh, they did decided not to go back into production but what I did and I, I wrote a letter to the producer and all the people who I knew from this show that was now defunct thanked them very much you know really followed up quite heavily and you know 18 months down the track, one of those producers was working on another show. It was a lifestyle show on Channel 9 in the morning and said, oh, I know a vet. So they contacted me and it was a, a lady called Carrie Ann Kennelly. And for 10 years I was on that show every week doing a, a pet segment. And that's where I got to meet amazing people and just had the most amazing time and heaps of fun. That was really good. Wouldn't do it for a living, but, you know, as an aside, they used to fly me up first flight out of Canberra in the morning at 6.15 and then I was on the plane home, coming home after lunch. It was uh, pretty whirlwind. Seriously? Yeah, yeah, really. Well, why? You say you wouldn't do it for a living? Why not? What's the, what's the downside? Oh, it's, it's really cutthroat. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Great yeah. people, on, you know, just solid human beings. But, yeah, vets are really different. You know, we, they've done so many studies on personality profiles of vets. We don't match anyone else. And you look at all these other industries and they're just not for me. I went to a seminar once. There was a guy who climbed Mount Everest quite a few times. And now what he does is just do corporate events and talks to people about his experiences. He does this scenario and he gets everyone in the audience to be part of it and have to make decisions about what's going on. And it was a real life scenario where there was people stuck on Mount Everest and other groups stuck somewhere else. And he would propose these questions. And in one of them was that there was this potentially a group who were stuck on another side of Everest, but no one was really sure. And that would mean you'd have to cut your trip off, not go, just in case there were some other people, right? And you go and save them. The only group of anybody he has spoken to worldwide who were empathetic enough to go and do that were veterinarians. So, yeah, yeah, so we really are different, right? And that's why, I, look, everything really affects us quite heavily. You don't think so, but we really are different human beings. And I think, and they're the people who stay in the profession and, and the people who I think tend to leave the profession, it's just too tough because that's, that's what it is. That's the territory we're in. So is the differentiator, because I, I often think that vets are different, but then I also I'm wary to not just, because I'm part of that group and we think, everybody thinks they're special, right? That my story is different and special to everybody else. So I worry that sometimes we make too much of how we are unique. But then speaking to other business people and people who try to, like I've done marketing courses and business courses, and often there will be this thing, yeah, it's, the vets are different. Vets are they're harder to market to. They have their own unique traits. So, so you mentioned empathy. Is that the key differentiator or what are the other differentiators? I think empathy is huge and I think that's part of our downfall as well. Gordon Parker, who wrote this sensational book called Burnout. Yeah, yeah, we had him on the podcast. Uh, he's just, everyone should get that book. He talks a lot about that and I think he's really hit the nail on the head. That that's why we do struggle with mental health issues in our profession because of that. 
So what's the secret to maintaining the long career if you are this, if we are mostly these deeply empathetic people? Empathetic, I always say empathetic, empathetic people. <laughs> How do you stick it out? What are the strategies? That's the $64,000 question, isn't it? Mm. You know, mm. so many smarter people than I have tried to answer that. For me, in my career, it, um, you know, he talked about electronic medical records. Well, I started before they were a thing. So that the, uh, the scrutiny just wasn't there, you know. And as I said, I'm never, I was never the smartest vet in the, in the block. In fact, if you're the smartest person in the room, you should go to another room. So I don't know. What's the answer? I don't have it for you. I go to a happy place. I know my triggers. I'm, you know, I'm pretty self-aware. I do a lot of mindfulness things. And when I say mindfulness, for me, it's not colouring in or jigsaw puzzles. It's I go bouldering and you've got to be very mindful there. I play a lot of golf and you're really in the moment. So those sorts of things protect me from the exposure that I openly give to my clients at work. I was just going to say one last thing. I practice with a, an eternal sense of gratitude. So I'm super thankful I, it was funny, I took over this practice. I thank all my staff when I go to work for coming and then I thank them when I go home. And I took over this one practice and I thank this girl, this nurse. I said, thanks so much for your, your work today. And she said, what are you thanking me for? She said, you pay me. But eternal sense of gratitude. I'm thankful that the clients come in. Yeah, and I think that really, that paradigm really helps. I keep seeing this pop up everywhere is the, the saying of not I have to, I get to. So when you have to do something that might seem hard to say, oh, the negative way of looking at it is, oh, I have to do this thing versus reframing and saying, I get to do this thing. Fantastic. It's all the self-talk, you know, 75% of the thoughts we had today are exactly the same thoughts we had yesterday, right? So you may as well get them, give yourself talk right. So the empathy thing, I'm on this tangent on reading and trying to find out more about empathy. I don't have an answer, but I have a good question. I think that could potentially help us find the answer. So I discovered this book by a psychologist, of Paul Bloom, the book's called Against Empathy. And the premise in the book is that empathy is not a great driver for decision-making. And the, the theory behind it, so if we dig deep into the definitions, and it is getting a bit semantic, but there's differences. So empathy, per his definition, is an emotional response where we feel the feelings of the other people. So I feel my patient's pain or the client that's upset about losing their pet. I feel it. And they do functional MRI studies where when they scan people feeling empathy, they show them videos of other people getting hurt and stuff like that. And you literally get the same areas of your brain light up as the person in pain. And that is a negative emotion. It wears you down. Whereas when they look at compassion, which they describe as, I can understand what you're going through, but I'm not actually feeling what you're going through. So you need that to be able to to be a good vet. Because I do feel very strongly what I used to call empathy is essential for being happy as a veterinarian. If you lose it, then well, there's no point doing the work we do. But uh, he says we should shift to compassion, which is I understand and I, I get what, you, what you're going through, but I'm not feeling it. I'm not sharing your pain. But that understanding drives me to want to act. So whereas empathy can be a disabling emotion of I'm so hurt and emotional that I actually can't do anything. Whereas I get it and I want to do something and I want to help you. And that's compassion. And that is actually a very positive emotion that keeps you going, that keeps you going, which is a, a really cool idea. Okay. So therefore, you've got that knowledge with you now. Do you want to ditch being empathetic and just become compassionate? I encourage you to read the book because lots of people argue with them vehemently saying, no, no, you can't ditch empathy. 
according to the book, we have to. I'm not sure about it yet, but he, he says because that empathy can make you make bad decisions as well mm. because you're making an emotional decision. It's not a rational decision. So A, it wears you down and B, it, it actually affects your, in terms of bigger decision-making, sometimes you'll, let, let's say there's a scenario of a, a single animal or a single child or some somebody who's suffering versus a a global scenario with a hundred children starving somewhere. But the one in front of you, the one that you can see gets, gets that massive empathetic emotional response going, uh, which might drive you to make a decision to favor this one. And there's, there's research supporting this saying that people will make really nonsensical, non-rational decisions based on strong emotional empathetic responses. So according to him, yes, we have to ditch empathy in exchange for compassion. But I'm not saying it's the how is I don't know how how do you do that? How do you how do you make that shift? How do you stop it from actually wearing you down and make it turn it into a positive emotion? Yeah. So I'm I'm not not sure about the theory. I'm still working on it. I'm still trying to read about it. And which and that also raises the question if compassion is such a positive emotion and drives you to take action and do good things, where does that leave us with compassion fatigue? Is there such a thing? Are we actually just fatigued? We feel compassion, so we drive, 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 and we actually just get physically fatigued. You can get caught up in definition, can't you? Yeah, yeah. anyway, that's, a, that's my <laughs> little side stream there. Michael, with all the stuff you do, are, are you still doing the media stuff now, or is that a, a, a past thing? Everything has its life cycle. And I got to write a book, and what happened on the back of that because that was because of my TV exposure. Then a company contacted me to write a book on the human-animal bond. And because of that, I got a heap of media work. You get legitimacy as soon as you got a book. doesn't matter if it's good, bad, or indifferent, right? <laughs> and uh, it sold 10,500 copies. It went really well. But I kind of got bored with the media stuff, you know. You know, as I said, it has its run. It had heaps of fun. So I do bits and, you know, here and there, stuff that I want to do, but so the book, Animal Wisdom, that's about the human-animal bond. Yeah, correct. Well, correct. That's yeah. the basic theme of the book. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, in your own words, what, how do you define that human-animal bond? What is it? What is it? Yeah, look, it's, it's a hard one. I mean, it, there's classic definitions about a mutually beneficial relationship. And what I always say to people, it's a little bit like a beautiful piece of art or music. It's really hard to describe, but you know it when you see it. And so in the vet game... That translates to, you know, the unbelievable, you just see it in front of you every day, the bond between the person and the animal. Or it might be the science behind the fact that autistic kids do better in a classroom with, you know, guinea pigs up the back. Or how you see people have the same medical condition as their pet. You know, the drop in blood pressure goes on and on. And it's all that sort of stuff that was just coming across the consult table day in, day out. So when Pam McMillan said, you know, we want you to write a book, what do you want to write it on? It was the science behind the human-animal bonds. And it's going to take about, you know, animals going into hospitals, all that sort of stuff. It's going to take about 10 years before we have a bit of a societal shift in on Australia to really embrace the benefits that pets bring to society even more. But it's, it's getting there. So why was that your choice of book is it just because you saw it like what was your trigger to go well i want to find out more about this and i want to talk about it to the world because you also do talks on it it's, it's your thing that you, it's your soapbox <laughs> yeah 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 one of them man i've got a heap of them <laughs> <laughs> what was the driver why, why did you decide to, yeah. to talk about this well, topic why, why is it important to get it out sure. to the world well it, it, i looked at it from the outside too what can't i write about as i said i'm, I'm not really that 
with Smart and Chloe. So it narrowed the field up a bit. But it was just the stuff that came across the desk all the, ta- all the time. And I got to go to the US quite a bit once again on some fantastic trips to meet fantastic people. But I'd go to all the anthrozoology conferences and see this science being produced. And I thought, people need to know about this. You know, it's not mainstream and yet it's, it's life-changing. So I thought this was a great vehicle to do it. Just you know, incredible stuff. And in fact, there was one tipping point, one story that a mate of mine who was the surgeon at Sydney University a few decades ago, and he, so he's a pretty smart guy. You know, surgeons, you know what they're like, right? <laughs> fact, 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 fact. So um, he was in a consult room one day. He worked this cat up, and uh, there's husband and wife there, and he says to them, "Oh, look, I've got bad news. You know, the, the cat's got this tumor on its spleen, and it's called a blah blah blah, right?" So. You know, it's not looking good. And the lady faints in the consult room, right? And so my mate goes, oh, you know, that's not good. You know, everyone comes back to earth. And he and they said, look, we've got to tell you the story. He said, my wife was diagnosed with that exact same cancer. So a really rare one, right? My wife was diagnosed with that exact same cancer six months ago. And the cat used to come and sit on her belly. And she used to pat the cat and say, the healer will make it well. The healer will make it well, right? This is all woo-woo stuff. And so, and then suddenly she goes back for MRIs and CTs. There's no detectable cancer in her body. And now the cat's got. And so they then spent the next half hour having an ethical decision about what they would do. Would they treat the cancer in the cat or not? But look, it's one of those stories. And as I said, this is a surgeon at Sydney University, you know, so it's not, I mean, it's anecdotal, but um, it comes from a very reliable source so that sort of stuff when you hear that you think man you know people need to know about this this is really cool this is why we're good dinner companions right around the dinner table yeah (laughs) yeah well especially with your research so were there other things that you've discovered in your research about this that just blew your mind or, or changed the way you interact when you're at work the things like when pets know when their owners are coming home Mm. Uh, they've done all those studies where you know the dog is lives half an hour away from the office and the person picks their keys up in the office and the dog goes to the front door in anticipation of the owner coming home or you know there was one great case with a a horse where this girl used to go and visit her horse half an hour away drive that way and the horse always knew and it would go to the corner of the paddock anticipating the owner right and then one day it went to the other corner of the paddock and the people where it was being adjusted thought, what's going on here? Well, that day, the owner decided to catch a train to the station and walk to the paddocks instead of drive a car. So she entered the paddocks and, it did, you know, that sort of stuff. Oh, it's goodness. like, man, we know so little. You know? Wow. It's a big time commitment to write a book, though. When you run all these businesses, you've got all these other things you do. How do you decide where to devote your energy? I live my life by that. Pareto principle, you heard of that? The 80-20 principle? Okay, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, 80-20 principle, right? So I find that 20% of stuff that's going to make 80% of difference. Sorry, for people who don't know what that is, the 80-20 principle, this guy Pareto back in Italy centuries ago realised that 80% of the wealth was held by 20% of the people and 80% of crime is committed by 20% of criminals. And it goes on and on. I was at a seminar once with Sam Bowden and he got people up and it turned out in the seminar, 80% of the shoes were owned by 20% of the people. (laughs) (laughs) You know, some people had like 80 pairs, you know. So, And I did, I ran that on my client base, on my database. 
And it wasn't quite 80-20, but 30% of my clients gave me 70% of my income. So what I do is I laser focus that 20%. I spend a lot, a lot of time working out what that 20% is of a topic, and I just laser in on that. And so I managed to do a lot more stuff with my time because of the 80-20 principle. You know, we're talking about decisions again. I make stacks of decisions, right, stacks and stacks and stacks. I get a lot of them wrong, but I get most of them right. So I laser focus that 20%. So when you're making those analyses to see what's going to be the biggest impact or where you should focus, what are your metrics? What are you hoping to – and I'm asking for personal reasons because I I struggle a lot with – still trying to allocate time on all these interesting things that are out there and all these opportunities popping up, deciding what are you hoping to achieve with that laser focus? Well, obviously it depends on each scenario, doesn't it? You know, it's like clinical work. I could do a lot more clinical work, but I wouldn't have the leverage of being able to help my vets currently. I'm much better off stepping back and leveraging myself so I can help them with case management or whatever and releasing them. That's just a specific example. You know, I, as I said, I play a lot of golf and, you know, I focus on the 20% of my game that's going to make 80% of difference. And, and you just got just to realise that and be comfortable with it and just go, I can't be all things to all people. I can't do all things all the time. I can only do this bit, but gee whiz, I'm going to do it well. I skipped over a question I wanted to ask um, when we were talking about the human-animal interaction and the bond. You said earlier in the when we talked about it, about a societal shift that will take about 10 years to happen. Is it happening though? Have you, you've been a vet long enough, have you noticed a big shift in that human-animal bond interaction? Classic phrase is that dogs have gone from the backyard to the bedroom. You know, you now ask clients not does your dog sleep in the bedroom, but are they under the covers? That's the extent of it, isn't it? You know, so... Does it, does it ever happen that you get out of bed and go sleep on the couch so that you don't feel comfortable. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just a mess. And it's, we've seen it in, you know, when I started in rural practice, I remember a case once where a fella came in, he said, if it costs more than 100 bucks to fix this dog, don't bother. And the estimate was $105. And literally the guy said, don't bother. Right? And now we've got pet health insurance and MRIs and, yeah, major, major change for the better for both, right? For the better, yeah, and, and same thing. I've been doing it long enough, and I also had the shift from South Africa to the UK to Australia, and, and I feel like there's a – I don't know if it is. Maybe maybe if I go back to South Africa, it'll be different, but I feel like there it was more the – if it's going to be more than X, then don't bother, that sort of approach. Definitely for the better because you get to do better work and we get to do the thing that we trained for want to do. But do you find that it adds more pressure as well? in terms of expectations on us, is there a negative side to it? Sure. Remember I mentioned earlier in the discussion that, you know, I certainly was greeted by the phrase many times early in my career of, well, at least you had a go, you know, you did your best. But now, you know, we can't keep up with the level of medical knowledge that we're expected to know. And I'll go back to the 80-20 principle. I'm competent at dermatology and I'm not, great at cruciate surgery so I get someone else to do that so I can only do the what I can do and but I do it really really well so I think we just need to and you've seen it in specialization in the vet field you know there used to just be orthopedic surgeons and ophthalmologists came along and now we've got oncologists and the list goes on and on and on um, you just got to know what you can do and what you can't do and what you can do do it really well and don't try and know everything you just can't 
but the identification of what's abnormal and what's normal, that's a really important thing. And does that just come with time? Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Or with good mentoring, you know. I was on an SBS TV show about the mental health crisis in the vet industry and one of the vets there was an equine vet and um, she'd been through horrible stuff. Well, she now works with me as a small animal vet and um, so I'm able to be there and, and she'll, you know, just say, oh, what do you think about this? And I'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, we need to, that one's in trouble or no, no, that's all right, it's going to be okay. And, but that ability to discern only comes really with quantity time in the profession. I think that's often a big stressor when you start is you, you lack that. It is almost like a sixth sense. And it's not a sixth sense. I've, I found it interesting learning about how your mind works. It's subconscious signals that you pick up and you can't, you talk about mentoring. Sometimes it's hard to explain. How do you know this thing that you know? You know, it's that, uh, I just know it's going to be okay. Yeah, but how do you know? I don't know. It's just, I could, I could tell. <laughs> I saw it when it walked in the door that it's, or, or on the flip side, when they walk in the door and you, and you immediately go, oh shit. Have you ever read, ever read a book called Blink by um, Malcolm Gladwell? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's exactly that's what he talked about in that book, Blink. It's just that bang moment. Tell me about dog dreaming. Wow. What's dog dreaming? <laughs> wow, that's a great question. You want to talk about our work in remote Indigenous communities? Yeah, but that's when I read about the, your work there, uh, the phrase you said that where you guys are working in Utopia – Oh, it's on the back end of dog country dreaming country, Ali Karang, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the dog yeah. dreaming story is uh, that there's a hole in the earth up in the Northern Territory where the dogs emerged out, right? And so that's specifically dog dreaming country, right? So we, quite a few years ago now, gosh, it'd be 10, 15 years ago, my business partner, Alison and Bill Taylor and I, there was a need to provide services to remote Indigenous communities, so the people up there couldn't access veterinary services for various reasons. Where we go, English is not their main language. It's second or third. They're very remote. It's 350 k's northeast of Alice Springs, dirt roads. So we went up there. We got invited up by the traditional owners of the land via the health clinic to go up and help them because the dog population control is out of just just insane. We went up there, started a desexing program and treating for internal and external parasites. And it just went gangbusters. It went fantastic. We so much so the impact on the human health, regardless of the animal health, was so significant that we got nominated as ACT finalists for Australian of the Year. I mean, it really, yeah, it's like it's insane the difference. So we go to thirty-two communities now, and it's all volunteer basis. We get our it's our staff. We take a team of about seven or eight people up there for about a week. Got a storage unit in Alice Springs with our anaesthetic machines and. We head off into the desert and come back a week later with a thousand stories and big smiles on our face. But let's get back to dog dreaming. So we've got a, a lot of non-Australian listeners. Can you tell us about the dreaming things in, in general? Explain for people who don't know what it, that's about. Yeah, and I'm going to fall back into a real local people sort of speak in that it's not my story, so it's hard to tell. And that's the nature of the people. So it's just the cultural way of... Telling stories about the world and the... Yeah, and how it all interacts with each other in creation and where everyone sits and who has to look after what and who has to manage what and how they all interact. And it's so complicated. It's, it's, when, we, when we go up there, we say it's not like going to another country. It's like going to another planet. Yeah, really? Yeah, you have to come one day, mate. 
I'd love to. Yeah, so I've done, I've talked about it before, um, just pre-COVID, started getting involved in similar work in Indonesia, in Lombok specifically. Right. And again, that ignorance of going, yeah, you could just walk into a village and start working. Because my impression there was that most of the dogs are unowned and kind of a pest. I thought, and I was told that they didn't particularly like the dogs and we could just go in and, and start work. And it was not the case. We got chased out of a village one day. They really valued those dogs. They just didn't have the same, they didn't value them the same way as, as us. They don't sleep on the beds, but they still have very valued, important part of the community. So there's got good lessons there. Yeah, totally. And every yeah. dog is owned by someone. And they've replicated this in Johannesburg as well. Like all around the world, in lots of these places, They've shown that where dog population is a problem, it's very similar. They've all got names. They're all owned. Everyone knows who's who, but they may culturally interact with them on a different level, and that's what you see when you go into these communities. They think we're crazy, by the way. The Aboriginal people up where we go think what we do with dogs is insane, that we leave them in a house and we go out to work for 10 hours and then come home and expect the animal to be fine, whereas up there they're just roaming free in a pack of 30 dogs outside, you know, with life happening and, and they look at us and go, you do what? I had those same thoughts in, in Lombok because your first instinct when you drive around there and you, you see suffering in some of those dogs because they not they don't have the same level of care. So when they become unwell or sick or when there's too many of them and you have puppies dying of hunger, it's confronting and, and painful to see as a Westerner. But then the other dogs, the ones that are healthy and strong and they have the best lives. They run around in a pack fighting and shagging all day, <laughs> just doing things that dogs love doing. So I often look at them and go, yeah, these are real dogs. They, they, they live the life for sure. It's just when things go wrong, then, it's, then it really goes wrong for you if you're out there. And maybe, I mean, has this helped you at all in, in your interactions back home? Because sometimes we are faced with clients, very often actually, who value their pets differently than us as vets. Because I think we forget as vets that we are so animal focused. It is the literally the center of our world. And then you get a client who doesn't want to spend the money or doesn't want to do this. I find lots of people get really upset by that. Like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you want to spend $5,000 on your dog? Um, now look, that, that sort of attitude really comes from being in the profession a long time, I think, more specifically than just being exposed to what's happening in the outback. You know, you can just never judge people. You don't know what's going on in their lives. And as long as they're respectful, then the decisions they make, you've just got to res respect that decision. But the, the things you do learn coming back from places like um, working in the outback is, you know, I talked about gratitude. Boy, oh boy. You know, we just won the lottery living in Australia. Um, living on where we do, it's just the, the greatest place in the world. And you certainly, the other skills you pick up, though, is you learn how to deal with what they call cheeky dogs. They're not cheeky. <laughs> These things. <laughs> cheeky. That's what they call them, cheeky dog. Um, boy, oh, boy, when you've got to oh, – we had to wrestle some dingoes at one stage. And, the, you know, these are wild, savage dogs, you know. So <laughs> you come back and, you know, the cavoodle's there and you've got to clip its nail. It's just nothing. Right, bring it on. <laughs> when the chihuahua tries to bite you, you laugh at it and go, you've got nothing, mate. You don't know. <laughs> so how do you practically do it? How, how do you handle the cheeky dogs up there? They always want you to bring a blowgun. It's like, man, where, where would that suddenly come from? You know, blow darts. How do you deal it? What's really cool is – the way they handle their dogs up there are really different. So if you can get one of the locals just to, they literally just put their hand on the dog. So, so the dogs don't have collars or anything. There's no fences, no nothing, right? The dog will just stand there 
dead still. Won't do a thing. It's this bizarre thing. And then you use a, a 25 gauge needle and a little bit of um, sedative, well, a lot of sedative. You know, give them a subcutaneous injection and you watch them like a hawk for the next five minutes while they calm down. Sometimes the local people will put them in the vehicle for us, but usually you've got to wait until they're sedated. And then we drive them back to a central area that we have set up as a makeshift operating theatre. So what, when they have the hands on them, they won't turn and snap? Yeah, oh, well, not usually. Just, usually yeah. great. And you just, and once again, you, you know, it's this real quantum physics-y thing about relationships with animals is they kind of know if we're experienced and we're not going to hurt them, they trust you a little bit. And so it's enough to get a 25-gauge needle in. You can't pick them up. They just go crazy, right? You can get a 25-gauge needle in. Those Lombok dogs, they fascinate me. I think they're almost a different species. They are so wild. And it's weird. If you drive around the town on a scooter or something, they're not worried about you at all. As soon as you walk around, just looking at them, you just literally just look at them and they're like, something's up, gone, 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 gone. So there we have to dart them. We, we use the blow darts there. It's the only way you can, yeah. you can't get near them and they will, they will attack if you try and hold them. So it's a good fun. I'll, I'll pick that up. I'll take you to Lombok if you take me out back. We can get yeah. to some dark work. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, there's a topic that I've said I'd love to talk to you about just because of all the things you do and teams that you manage and, and all these different situations is difficult conversations. Uh, we touched on, on clients who have different values to you and don't always want to follow your recommendations. And then specifically conversations with, with coworkers as well, when there's a disagreement or as, a, as an owner and manager, giving feedback that's not always nice feedback. Whether you've learned something over the years, how you approach this in a way that gives you the best outcomes. A good mate of mine said, you get the staff that you deserve. And if you don't make hard decisions, then it's your fault. And if people aren't fulfilling your expectations, you haven't been clear enough about what you're expecting from them. So you've got to take a lot of the responsibility on, upon yourself initially. And when that is open then on the table for people to see, runs like this so I'll do a staff review and if there are things there that I'm not happy with I usually find that if, if they're not doing what we want them to do they're not happy in their job and so my opening gambit in staff reviews is hey Mary you're not happy what's going on and get them to talk if you get a buy-in by the staff you'll get an 85% compliance rate. Whereas if you tell them from the top, Mary, you're not answering the phone properly. Mary, you're, you know, you're rude to the clients. You get a 35% change in attitude. So it's critical and it's almost not worth doing unless you get buy-in from the staff member. And you have to help the staff member realise that they're not happy and realise why they're not happy. And then we have to coach them to resolve those situations. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does. How do you get that buy-in? By helping them realise that what the issues are. So helping them realise that they're not happy. Like I've only ever sacked two people. One was from gross misconduct and the other was just a lady who was just a bad cultural fit. All the other staff I've helped moved on. But people know you're genuine. They have to trust you in the staff. They have to know that you've actually got their best intentions at heart. And so you have to develop a high level of trust with your staff first to be able to operate on that level. They have to see that in you. You have to live out your life in such a manner that they respect that and then they'll take that on board. Whereas if they see you as a bit of a fraud, they're not going to listen to a word you say. 
trust is the feel like that's one of the key things with all these sort of conversations, whether it's with staff or if you if you're not officially in a leadership position with your coworkers and and then clients as well. I find that's one of the huge things, especially in emergency work, is really quickly gaining trust with a client so that they get that buy-in. Have you figured out ways to make that happen quickly? Specifically, talking clients now, like how do you get a client to trust you with the life of their pet and their wallets? in a 10-minute consult? They've got to be heard. You've got to let them tell you, right? You've got to listen. And classic GPs take eight seconds in a consultation before they'll interrupt the patient. So we need to just listen. And then you've got to find that 20% that's really important to the client, right? The 80-20 rule. And that 20% is going to make all the difference. So, you know, they'll they'll come in with an issue and, and you almost need to find the reason behind the reason and it's fortunate for me. I mean, I've been a vet 35 years and I've got silver hair, you know, so you, they come in immediately, my physicality is such that they go, okay, great, you know, you've done this for a while, you must know what you're talking about. I don't say too much. I, I just listen a lot and say, okay, look, these are the issues and this is what we need to do. I don't offer people choices. I think that's a mistake. You know, or we can do ABC, we can do X, Y, Z. I say your dog needs and I use the word need, you know. So what we need to do here, and I'll tell them why, you know, in your case, we need to do cytology so I can tell you what's in there and so I can give you the most appropriate treatment. We need to take some blood work because otherwise we're just guessing, aren't we? Because otherwise you confuse the client. They come to you because you're the expert. Even if you're a new grad, you know way more than they do. Right? So they're paying you good money. They want your opinion, not you know, some wishy-washy thing. Just make, you know, this is back to the decision-making thing again, right? I keep hammering that. It's not a bad decision. You're just going to make one. Right? Yeah, I, I hear that quite often is, well, it's up to the client. They have to make the decision when we guide them and what we want to do. And I'm with you. I don't think that's fair on the clients. At some point, they've got to make a decision, but they don't really have the deeper background knowledge to make those decisions. It's like I always say, if I, when I take my car to the mechanic, I just want them to tell me what I need to do. I don't want them to say, well, and we can do this. Or, or if you want to, we can check the filter because, well, I, I don't know. I don't understand cars. It's your, this is your job. Tell me what to do. No, people are time poor. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, by the time they've come to you, they've Googled it. They've, they've come to you because they want to know what you know and what your advice is. The, I just want to skip back a step. You said we apply the 80-20 rule with gaining trust, finding the 20% that matters to the client. So, can you give me an example? Like, what, what do you mean? So a dog comes in and you look at it and it's really itchy and, you know, hardly any skin on it. And, and the owner comes in and says, I brought it in because the dog, you know, sleeps in the bed and it stinks. So I'll focus on the malassezia dermatitis it's got, right? Even though the poor bugger has got duck ops or it's scratching all over the place, that will come. But I'll address the problem that the client has brought the dog in for and I'll pay respect to that. But at the same time, I'll couch it in the bigger picture saying, okay, we're going to do that, but we need to do this as well. So just finding out why have they actually come to see me, you know. There's a classic case where we were the third or fourth opinion on this case and this dog had a, it was a standard poodle, had one of those adenomery things on its face. And the previous vets had all said, don't worry about it, it's just cosmetic, leave it alone, right? So I listened to this client and her father had recently died of a facial tumour. 
So every time she saw this benign adenoma, she was catapulted back to the emotions of losing her father, right? Now, without listening to this client and finding out what the driver for her for coming into the practice was, I would have been as guilty as the other three. But I said, yeah, I understand what's going on. Yes, it's cosmetic, but I understand the scenario here. And this was affecting the human-animal bond. And I said, yeah, I have no problem at all in, in rectifying this. I want to ask you, I'm personally just very curious about the acupuncture thing. On the clinical podcast a while ago, we spoke to an acupuncturist as well. And I'm, I'm exactly like you. I'm learning more and more or hearing really positive things about it, but skeptic because of my a sciencey background. <laughs> it can be hard to. So are you, are you non-skeptical? Are you using it in daily practice? And if so, how are you using it? Mm, so acupuncture, if I was to advertise the fact that I'm an acupuncturist, I'd be full-time the need, the perceived need in clients. It's huge. But I use it as a Western-trained veterinarian, and so I use it as an adjunct therapy like I would nutraceuticals in osteoarthritis, or, and I'll put it in my multimodal treatment plan. But I rarely use it as a main modality. There are better things to treat animals with than acupuncture for lots of conditions. And that's how I use it. Am I still a skeptic? No, I've seen it work. I've seen animals come in lame and go out not lame and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, it's not a panacea, right, at all. Why do you think Western medicine was developed, right? Because there was a need for it. Right, that's right. Yeah. Mainly for pain, for arthritis and things like that? Are there things that you're using it for that's not in that basket? Um, one thing that works really, really well with is fecal incontinence which is interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, those dogs that have that issue, it's, it's fantastic. Anyway, but I use it mainly for osteoarthritis, right? for dogs, for some other, you know, as a multimodal approach and needing quite a bit, that would be absolutely 95%. And then if somebody comes in wanting acupuncture specifically for some specific condition, I'll see whether I think it's an appropriate thing or not. I mean, it's well recognised that it works appallingly in dermatology, you know. So there are times when I'll say to people, and, you know, this, this isn't what you need. What you actually need is our x-rays, right, to diagnose what your dog's problem is. I think it works well in our modern clinical setting that way. It gives me a different approach. You know, I get lots of people coming in with different things like CBD oil. You know, they want to know all about it. And so it interests me to keep up with what are the trends out there in the alternative therapy space. Yeah, there's a lot of resistance to that in our science-minded profession. And I do sometimes wonder if we should try and be more open to it because that's what people are asking for. But it's hard though because you don't want to sell stuff that's not going to work. But if people are they're out there on the internet looking for other stuff because that seems to be the, the trend in human health, how does your the business group, how do they approach this? Are they, yeah, so what's really what, what are your important, thoughts around it? really important to keep an open mind. And the reason you need to keep an open mind is you're not going to – change people when they're really stuck in that paradigm. Um, but what we need to do as a profession, we need to be advocates for our patients. And if they're suffering because they're not being given the appropriate therapies, we need to be advocates for them and stand up and say, look, that's not the best therapy. So if you can come across when people come and talk to you about alternative therapies and say, oh, look, I hear you, that's fine, and show some knowledge behind it as well, you're just not um, just parking it off to the side and respecting the client's opinion, but then saying, yeah, look, that's okay, but do you know that this works 
50 times better or this will work much quicker and your dog's really in pain and we need to do this. That's where I find me, a lot of times people come to me wanting acupuncture for first opinion based on osteoarthritis. And I'll say, we really need to work your, your dog up first. And then I know I'm doing the right thing by the pet. So they get a full in orthopedic workup and then we give them our normal multimodal approach rather than treating the acupuncture straight up per se. I'm not saying that's the wrong way to go. It's just the way that I handle these things. Mm. No, and I think the fact that you have knowledge about that stuff gives you more authority to talk about it. Whereas what I often do and what I think what we often do is just, we're just resistant. Just go, look, I don't even talk about it. This is, if, if that's the stuff you're into, then you're at the wrong place. We do it this way. Whereas you, you can say with some authority because you have the knowledge about it. Yeah, that's cool. I understand. But here's the other side of the story. And they're probably more likely to listen to you because of that. Totally. What a luxury that is, huh? It's great. Okay. Well, I think let's start wrapping up. I've got a couple more if you're okay to keep going. So you're a, vet, you're a business owner, you're an acupuncturist of some sort, and even your media career was animal-centered. If Michael wasn't a veterinarian, what else would you have done with your life? <laughs> what a question. It's a really hard question, isn't it? Because I do this and I love this. And as I said, vet is the greatest profession that there is. But what would I do? I'm very risk averse and might sound. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, can say. Businesses. <laughs> I am really risk averse. And that goes back to the 80 20 principle, right? I really I get that 20% right. So I don't make those bad mistakes, what you're talking about before on, bad decisions, right? So I'm really risk averse. So I had the opportunity when I was a kid to play sport professionally and I turned it down because of the unknown. So I probably would have done something like dentistry, you know, where you go into uni and you come out at the other end with an actual degree that you then do a job that has a defined career path. And that's I would do something like that. Even law would be a bit hard for me because I don't really understand what the direct career path is, but I do with, and I like science. So look, it probably something as boring, sorry, not as boring as dentistry. I've got great <laughs> mates who are dentists, right? Just something as simple as that, let's say, you know, yeah, because I'm risk averse. Why my eldest son, for some reason, says he wants to be a dentist. I'm like, yeah, I I'm fine with that. That's a safe, exactly for that <laughs> yeah, reason. You, yeah. You'll be all right if you're a dentist. <laughs> Michael, the, we, we've mentioned a couple of books. Do you listen to podcasts at all? Look, I'm not a big podcast listener. And the reason is I have a real problem with quietening my mind. It goes 24-7. I've got notepad next to my bedside table that I wake up and I'll think of stuff and I'll write it down. And I just can't stop my mind from thinking of a thousand million things and so I find anytime I'm in the car I tend to either have nothing on at all no music or anything which is I assume where most people listen to their podcasts I do actually listen to your podcast I don't listen to the clinical stuff right I listen to the other stuff because I really like trying to find out what makes people tick and I think you do that quite well so I'm not a big podcast listener because of that problem I have. Yeah, fair enough. I'm an obsessive podcast listener and I, I do sometimes think there's a, a price you pay for that is that lack of just mental. I think probably listen to stuff for the same reason that you say is that the quiet mind because if I don't, 
have something to focus on, then my mind's going about the here and there and there. And I, I sometimes find that quite um, quite exhausting, really, because there's all this driving along and I've got, oh, should I should do that? Or I'd like to do that. Or here's another idea. And sometimes it's nice to just go, well, I'll listen to somebody else's thoughts for a little bit. <laughs> for personal curiosity. So if that's how your mind works as well, what are you thinking about? Is it to-do lists or new ideas or where does your mind go and how do you stop it from being exhausting? Because I find it exhausting. Mm. My mind goes in every which way direction, often all times at once. You know, it might be the current issue that, that's urgent and important at work. It might be how I'm going to get my next project off the ground. I'm very, very keen on extreme poverty overseas and helping to alleviate that and stuff. And also we do a bit of work in the domestic violence space. So I'm always thinking about how I can get traction for that. I quietened down. I fell into a bit of a trap of drinking too much for a while because that quietens your mind. And I know that's a problem in the profession. So I haven't had a drink for three years. But I do lots more mindful things. I think I alluded to that early on, you know, with my golf and my bouldering and that sort of stuff and swim in the ocean. I'm not a good meditator. I know it's seriously good for you, but I just find that a real challenge. I'm lucky to make three or four minutes. <laughs> you gave it a try? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good hard crack. Yeah, it just doesn't gel with me. And then I think it was Gordon Parker, actually, back to that guy who wrote the burnout book. I think he actually said in his book that golf is a form of mindfulness. And I thought, Yahoo. <laughs> so it's an act of mindfulness more than a sit and practice mindfulness for you? Yeah, absolutely. And then the next practical question, when you have all these ideas, what's your system for filtering all those ideas into the the 20% that matters? Do you write stuff? You said you've got an iPad next to the bed. So have you got a to-do list and then you pick out of that what to do? Or, and again, this is purely, purely selfish asking. <laughs> no, 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 that's right. That's exactly how it works. And I'll investigate them a little bit, you know, along the way. And then I'll let them get into my subconscious and permeate for a while and then you know, the universe conspires and I might meet someone who's in that field and I'll end up heading down that way. So I've got always got a lot of things percolating away, seeing if there's any substance to them. And that's okay. I realise that that's a, a good thing. But then I get seriously passionate about a few things and I go, all right, I'm just going to have to ditch the other 80%. I'm just going to just laser onto these guys. I could have a whole conversation just about that because that's a, a big issue again. Because the more you do, the more opportunities pop up. And the more you can do, and, and you've got to say no to things. Well, I'm going to do my Australian Institute of Company Directors graduate program because I think my next stage of professional career will be taking the exposure I've had to the animal health industry, but maybe translate it into a bigger, broader sense at a top level. So I'm interested to see how that pans out. As in, you want to. Teach or are you going to do a course to learn more? No, go, yeah, no, going in, going in, doing the course. It gives you a specific skill set then to be able to operate at a higher level. All right, so not a big podcast listener. We touched on a couple of books from the from the old days, recent books that have changed the way that you think about life. A great book, Simon Sinek, Finding Your Why. Do you know that one? Yeah. Oh, that's a mind blower, right? And so when you find why you do what you do, the sky's the limit, right? And this is this work we're doing overseas in extreme poverty. And there's a great book called um, Half the Sky by Christoph. And 
you know, we can really make a difference. This is practicing in an eternal state of gratitude, right? We can really make a difference to the world and people by doing really simple things, you know, and that's one of my big passions. It's going to find some traction over the next few years. And just briefly, two things actively on that, if I can just do a little plug. One is just dump a little bit of money in a microfinance organisation like kiva.org. They lend out money to micro businesses and and the people pay you back. And the other is sponsor a kid Preferably, it sounds terrible, but preferably a young girl. Um, we do through an organisation called Compassion because there's a direct correlation with reduction in poverty when young girls are educated. I will put those links in the in the show description. Thank you for sharing those. So the why, I, I love that book as well. I listened to it and it's Simon himself reading it, which is really lovely. What's your why? Did you discover the why? Because he, he, he wants you to do it really succinctly, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had the... I've just lived such a blessed life. There was a media company who invested a lot of money in me at one stage and put me through this program where an external group found my why. One of them really was, I thought, they wanted one on a pet industry basis one and it was that I think everybody should own a pet. So that was nice and reassuring. (laughs) The other was, though, that one of my whys is financial independence. Now, that sounds really weird in the context of what I've just been talking about. But if you drill that down, and it came from the fact that we were almost putting foster homes when we were kids and and just had nothing, and I never wanted to go there again. And so that translates to the charitable work we do because I'm in a position now where, you know, we can help alleviate that for other people, right? And I think there's a real sense of responsibility that we should be doing that. We've got too much in Australia. We're too wealthy, you know. We have a responsibility to help others. But this is back to the start again. I've got the luxury of these opinions, right, from where I am in my professional career. Very fortunate. I had this discussion the other day with another guest. It seems that the trajectory is almost, I don't want to say selfish, but self-focused to get yourself to the point in your career where you can start thinking bigger. So basically, you've got to make sure your own needs are met financially to some degree. And often then people will go, okay, well, I'm, I don't have to worry about where my meal is going to come from. And now I can start looking beyond that. Was that your journey or have you always been in a position where you try to take care of others as well or, or look bigger beyond just making the next dollar? Sure. Two things there. One is... Nigel Marsh. I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, he's been on the podcast. Oh, is he? Yeah, he's just yeah. genius. He's just written a new book. It's not as good as his other ones, but he talks about these three trimesters of your life. The first one, first 30 years, you know, family, career, getting everything sorted. The next one's your, your professional career. And then, you know, when you hit 60, then you can do that sort of stuff, right? And I think that's totally true. But I don't think that's an excuse for not doing something today. Right. If it's going to be, it's up to me. And if not, who? You know, if not me, then who? Right. So you can still do something, albeit as small as volunteering for pets in the park or whatever floats your boat in whatever area. Um, I don't think it's just that I've, as I said, I've got the luxury of operating on a bigger level now. But we do all have a responsibility. Before we wrap up with the last question, I warned you about the new thing I want to try, and I'm stealing this from another podcast, where they actually, I'll, I'll, I'm going to have to send you a podcast link. It was a podcast I listened to that 
Simon Sinek was the guest, which is a really, really good podcast. And they finished their podcast with, you need to give me a question that I'm going to ask of my next guest, uh, but we don't know who the next guest is going to be. Yeah, yeah. And thanks for giving me, you gave me the heads up on that. And thanks for that, because I thought a lot about it, right? And I had a whole heap of them, but I've come down to one, right? Now, I told you that I'm really interested. What happens is when people lecture and, or, you know, you hear them on a podcast or you go to a conference, I want to know why they're telling me that piece of advice. What's behind that? Because otherwise it's just a to-do list, right? Put your injection fee up, you know, open earlier, um, be kind to yourself, you know, right? Why, who are you, right? So I reckon a question that I think would be appropriate would be describe to me your typical Sunday. Now, the reason I've said that is you're going to get a real insight into that human being, right? That's your personal time, you know. A lot of people work Saturdays or they're, depending on stage of life, they're running around with kids at sports fields. But Sunday comes along, what is it? What do you do? You might be the president of something or the, you know, the halfback for some football team, but what does your Sunday look like? So I just think that's a bit interesting. That's a really good question. I like that. Now, am I allowed to cheat and ask that question of you? <laughs> Can I ask you your own to. question? No, I'm going to just... <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. I'm going to have to wait for the next question. for the next guy. I know. Oh, God, I like that. Uh, so what we'll do with this one then is they'll answer your question and they'll have to give me they'll have to give me the question for the next guest. All right, so the last question. You're doing a talk and it's not just Japan. It's the whole world, all the veterinary new grads of the whole world, and you have a couple of minutes to give them one bit of advice. What's your advice? Yeah, and look, I've, I've had the benefit of listening to your podcast and hearing people's um, wise words, which have just been fantastic. Mine is back to a couple of things I said. New grads, congratulations, you're in the best profession on the planet. It's a gift, treat it as such, right? And on that level, you're not the best and you're not the worst, so be really, really kind to yourself and that would be it. And hopefully I drop the mic and walk off the stage. Okay, I'll I'll cut the podcast there. Boof with them. <laughs> oh, Michael, this is magic. Thank you so so much for your time, and I want to say thank you for all the stuff that you do. We always you say that. Sometimes I say that without thinking, especially this last couple of things you mentioned there, beyond just our vet world, thinking bigger. Thank you for sharing it, and thank you for doing it. It's magic. Yeah, good on you, Hughes. It's it's been a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you. Before you run away, a quick update on our clinical podcast series and what's in store for our subscribers. I told you about the conference, but I haven't mentioned the details of the clinical content. We recorded Prof. David Church and Prof. Jill Madison's talks on complicated diabetes, some amazing breakthroughs in thinking about and managing Cushing's disease that will change the way I approach these cases, some epic case studies, an approach to the jaundiced cat, a beautiful explanation of all things calcium and a session on that sneaky bastard of a disease Addison's. We'll be getting these out to our subscribers over the next few months, including the show notes, which will be the most up-to-date and practical guide on these topics that you'll find anywhere. And of course, there's still more than 100 hours of previous content that you can dig into. Go check it out at vvn.supercast.com. That's VVN for Vet Vault Nerds. 
or email us at vetveldpodcast at gmail.com about our practice subscriptions because it sucks to be the only one in the practice who shit out with their knowledge. Unless, of course, you like that feeling of being the smartest vet in the room. Thank you.